This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, it's Alec. We all love true crime podcasts, but perhaps you're looking for something a little different. Less murder, more intrigue. I invite you to check out a new podcast I just released called Art Fraud. It's the true story of one of New York City's oldest and most trusted galleries dealing in world-class art and how its doors would close forever in the wake of an unprecedented scandal. The art market is ripe for cons because it's inherently subjective. I just couldn't even look at it because it was so garish and so not by Rothko. We're talking about $80 million in fake paintings, or more precisely, forgeries. All episodes of Art Fraud are available right now. Okay, here's our show. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today is the brilliant pianist Leif Uva Ansnes. This is Ansnes performing a work from a fellow Norwegian composer Edvard Grieg's piano concerto in A minor with the Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra. Ansnes has received accolades for his musical prowess since he was a teenager. He won second place in Eurovision's Young Musician of the Year contest at age 18. Since then, he's been nominated for 11 Grammys, holds an honorary doctorate from Juilliard, and was called one of the most gifted musicians of his generation by the Wall Street Journal. To put it simply, Ansnes is a superstar of the classical world. From 2012 to 2015, Ansnes undertook an intense and ambitious multi-year project interpreting one of the greatest sets of work for piano ever written. Beethoven's Piano Concertos. He recorded and performed all five concertos in 15 countries across three continents with the Mahler Chamber Orchestra, all while conducting from his piano bench. His latest release is Mozart Momentum 1785-86, a project that pairs him with the Mahler Chamber Orchestra again, 
This time, Ansnes is exploring a time of immense creativity and growth in Mozart's career, concentrating on the specific period that would forever change the form. I wanted to know what his piano of choice is and what it takes to bring out the best from his instrument. Basically a Steinway uh, D model. And yeah, when I say my favorite piano, I mean, there are many, many good pianos. And what I've learned over the years is that more important actually is the piano technician. Because a, a great piano technician can bring out the best of a, in a mediocre piano actually, can bring something of a jewel out of something which is rather gray. So over the years, I have now a network of piano technicians that I know, and I sometimes bring them on tour, and, and that's incredibly valuable. I, I often compare it with, you know, Formula One cars. Uh, I was just going to say. Yeah, because just gonna you need the technicians on hand, you know, right next to you, there, and then, and before, the the and, crew. and viewing the recording, and, 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 you know, yeah, absolutely. Now, you make some pretty laudatory comments about Beethoven. Mm -hmm. You say Beethoven is really the most meaningful music there is. I think every composer is trying to write something meaningful, but with Beethoven, every phrase and around every corner, there is uh, uh, such content, such surprises, such original ideas. When did you first fall so deeply in love with Beethoven above all, I don't all know. others? I mean, as a child, I, I felt this music had a lot of gravity but it was it was a little bit foreign. It was like something I, I thought, I will need time to understand this. Also, playing it was kind of uncomfortable because Beethoven goes for the extremes. So the right hand would go very high up and the, and the left hand very far down in the treble, you know, in comparison with, with Grieg or, or Chopin or Mozart, where it was more, I was more dealing with the middle of the keyboard. And that was uncomfortable for child naturally. And to feel and understand that space in the music which he creates between the bass and the treble and wanting to go to the extremes. And that took some time for me, but naturally, you know, something like the first moment of the Moonlight Sonata, I played it probably when I was seven or eight. And, and I felt that, you know, here is some real depth. There's some something going on here. So literally, when you talk about the expanse, and the range and the keyboard, Beethoven sounds like it's something you have to grow into. If, or some of his compositions you have physically, to be able to grow yeah. into it. <laughs> Unless you have a, a junior-sized piano, which do they make those which, things Which now? they don't. No, no. That's, that's the advantage of a pianist. And of course, I didn't reach the pedal till I was about nine or something. And I started playing when I was five. So there were some disadvantages in the beginning. And when you play the first moment of the Moonlight Sonata, you, you need the pedal. Um, <laughs> otherwise, it becomes rather dry. It comes in handy. Yeah. Who were the maestros you think were really great piano players? Ooh. Well, I mean, obviously, um, obviously, Barenboim is somebody who has right. done it from both disciplines, uh, from being a, a teenager. Uh, Christoph Eschenbach is another one. Uh, just mm -hmm. some people that come to mind. I mean, so many of the conductors have played the piano, but some have played, you know, more professionally, than <laughs> more professionally <laughs> than others. But it's actually, I think, a real advantage to play the piano. You, know, I, I often, I'm amazed that some conductors you know, at conductor meetings and and they sit down and start playing and. It, wow, you know, the, the one. I mean, somebody who really plays, for instance, is uh, Antonio Papano, who is, is chief conductor of Covent Garden, the opera house in London for, for so many years now. And, and he started as a repetiteur and to really control an opera, I mean, it's such, it must be such an advantage to actually being able to play the, the opera from a piano score. 
and to understand the harmonies and everything. And um, with my Mozart project now, I'm of course trying to conduct myself as well. And, and with the Beethoven, to try to do two disciplines as one, which can be difficult, but which actually is really rewarding in that music when, when it works with an orchestra, because I, I feel part of the narrative all the time. The, the problem with the piano concerto is that you can often feel like you're waiting for your entrance and be a bit on the side. And then it's my entrance, it's my turn, then it's the orchestra's turn. When I'm conducting or leading the orchestra at the same time, I'm in the narrative of the music constantly. And there's a, there's a great feeling of flow in the music making. When you talked about as a child and your passion for Beethoven, the ensemble you're performing with is the Mahler Chamber Orchestra, correct? Yeah. And that's who you did the Beethoven project and you're going to do the Mozart project. And we're doing the Mozart, yeah. So when you finish with them six years ago, although the Beethoven thing ended in 2015, Mm. had you worked with them in an ongoing way or you had kind of lost, you you, you weren't performing with them? Well, but... You were going to pick it up before the COVID, so it wasn't that long. Yes, we started talking about a new project, but it took a few years before we actually... But why them? What about them? Mm. Well, I, it became so special for me to do this project for three years with them, with all the Beethoven concertos. And we did about 80 concerts together, three recordings. And I'd never had the feeling that I could work on pieces going so far in terms of detail. And this is an ensemble that's, you know, you suggest something and you get something slightly different, which is better than you imagined. You want a really explosive chord followed by silence and, and you get an amazing sound from them. I've never come across an ensemble that is searching for a kind of truth in every project they do. You know, they are a touring ensemble. They don't actually have a geographical home. They have an administration in Berlin, but they play all over Europe, mostly in Europe, also other continents, but it's a touring ensemble. And to be a member in the orchestra, you have to do 60% of the project. So it's a lot of traveling for the members. And when you choose that kind of lifestyle, you choose it because this is important. You know, this is not just work. This is your life. You did 80 concerts over what period? Of three years. And especially the... The same three years. Yeah. And... The last year we played several times all the five Beethovens again and again in 10, 12 different cities. We had residencies. And to revisit these pieces, which we had already recorded and already toured with, was so wonderful. And I started the project thinking of Beethoven as structure and contrast and revolutionary music. And so on. I, I ended up thinking of him as, as freedom. You know, that's really what the music is ultimately about. And that's how we felt in the last concert. There was such a spontaneity and freedom in the concerts. And I have to say that's how I feel also now with the Mozart, with just different music, but in different ways. Now, you're focusing in the Mozart project on like a couple of years. Yeah. This 1785 period where he has this explosion of creativity and the surge of creativity in his Mm. life. And, And I'm... Wondering from your experience, don't all the great composers have that kind of a period in their life? Well, and certainly Mozart. I mean, Mozart seemed to have it most of his life. Though I don't think he was such a wunderkind in terms of composition as he he maybe is portrayed as. You know, we don't see the real masterpieces until he's about 20. But then the last 15 years of his life, I mean, he was constantly writing wonderful things. But something specifically happens with the piano concertos in this period, and that's why we call it Mozart Momentum, 1785-86. So he starts, 
he expands everything. He expands the narrative, the drama of the music. He expands the orchestration. He brings in clarinets. He brings in more instruments to the orchestra. And he expands the dexterity of the solo part, you know, the, the possibilities. And it's the first time in the history that you feel he's separating the solos a little bit from the orchestra. You, so you have sometimes the feeling of this heroic role that the soloist would get so much in the 19th century. And Beethoven would, you know, if you think about the Emperor Concerto, for instance, you know, starts with this kind of flourish after the first chord in the orchestra. And you say, here I am. And you're being thrown out on, on, on the gladiator stage and you are potentially the hero. And that, that's very much a big element of, of those big concertos that we know so well and like from the 19th century, from Schumann, Grieg to Rachmaninoff. And Mozart started this. This is the very beginning, I, I think, in 1785. So for me, it's the most important moment in the history of the genre of the piano concerto. So is the Mozart project in the same vein as the Beethoven project where you and the ensemble will travel yeah. and tour and perform around the world and do dozens of performances of these concertos and before you record them or you'll record them live? The project has been limited by the pandemic, but... The fact that we managed to do both these recordings and, and now in the, we did the three-week tour in Europe with 12 concerts in Brussels and Hamburg in the wonderful new Elbe Philharmonie. Uh, we had a resident, residency of three concerts and then recording in Musikverein in Vienna right before they closed the country, in fact, for another lockdown. So I feel like extremely lucky to have been able to do these four CDs, two double CDs of, of, of recordings with this orchestra. And what I... I mean, we're dealing with, you know... History, it's, it's a long time since the 18th century, and I want to keep this personal, and, and it helps me to choose a specific time, like one or two years, and put on the glasses and really look at what, what happened there and then. It was also a really interesting time in Vienna. I mean, Mozart, he was in, in a way the first freelancer. I mean, he quit his job for the archbishop in, in Salzburg when he was 21, and he said, I'm going to Vienna. Vienna is piano land. He said. That's the name of your next album, by the way, <laughs> yeah. Piano Land. <laughs> right. Quite commercial. And he created his career, of course, with the piano as a centerpiece and with the piano in focus. And that's why all these piano concertos and all this, all this music with piano keeps coming. And then, of course, the operas and all that. And he was lucky because there was an emperor, Joseph II, who was very liberal and a and big supporter of the arts and, and created a, an environment just there and then. So I think we should be very glad that he ended up in Vienna. How has the recording uh, aspect of your career changed in your lifetime? I'm assuming there are some similarities with popular music in terms of the difficulty of getting labels to want to record. Like when you do the Beethoven project, mm. do, do you go with a recording contract in hand already? You're not going to bother doing it unless you know you're going to put it down with somebody? Or yeah, is I'm, that something that evolves in time? I've had for the last years a, a, an exclusive recording contract with Sony Classical. And, and so... And they very much wanted to do this Beethoven project, and they are also doing the Mozart project. But of course, everything has changed so much. I mean, I started mm -hmm. making recordings around 1990, where you know, we had the CD boom, and and everything mm -hmm. seemed possible. Sure. And you know, you, I I recorded Janáček piano music, and it sold thousands and thousands. I mean, it, it, and I wasn't uh, you know very well known or anything. It was just amazing to be part of that journey where everything seemed possible. And today it's it's something completely different. But I find it really important to do it for myself, you know, for every project to have 
well, for, for often for a project to have an end end goal. And I learned so much from the recording as well. There's no situation where you have to analyze your playing so much as when you record. I often do a take and I go and listen and think, no, no, no. I mean, it needs to there needs to be more contrast, less taking time there, you know, move over there, I, all kinds of things. And then you play yourself closer and closer to where you think you need to be. So you do many takes. Oh, yeah. Lots and lots. And, and also I take part of the editing process after. Now, after the New Year's, I will, I will take part in our last Mozart recording. And that's been a wonderful thing with the COVID period is that I've learned that there is a possibility called Source Connect where, you can, where I can join my producer and editor online and we can do this work online. I used to travel to London for two days for each recording and, and do editing together with, with my people there. But that's really intense. You know, you listen the whole day and after 12... Who gets the final cut? I do, of course, yeah. You, you do, seriously. <laughs> yeah. So there's no producers from no, that you work with who well, you defer to them. There, there is a discussion, of course, but it ultimately becomes very personal. And I, I say, you know, that's the way I wanted to go. And that's why I really like that take, because I, I, that means something to me. And that's why I will ultimately be disappointed when I get the first edit of a recording because I haven't put it together. And I know the producer did his best, but it's really, really personal. So I need to be part of that process. When you perform, whether you're with the Mahler Chamber Orchestra or whomever, is there a typical preparation you have before you go on stage? Are you, I mean, I've spoken to some of the biggest stars of popular music, some of them older from, you know, the 70s and so forth. Mm. Some of them talked about, I take a nap before the show. You know, there's all kinds of different approaches. I've always done that. I've always done that. And I, you know, you can't, you can't eat a lot right before you go on stage. Then, but also you mustn't be hungry also. So you have to time these things a little bit. And I've always, <laughs> yes. I'm always trying to nap. And, and I was really good at it like 20 years ago. And, and today I might get, you know, seven minutes of sleep but it, or, or relaxation, but that's enough sometimes. And it's interesting, I find that the body seems to hibernate in the afternoon, often before. I mean, you, often in the afternoon. I know I mine feel, does. I mean, the brain knows that I need to deliver in the evening. It just gets very slow in the afternoon. If I have to do something big, I don't. I certainly don't want to see people. I'm not very social, and and uh, before a concert, and I get to the um, hall, you know, quite early, and and just prepare for myself, thinking about the piece, playing a little bit backstage, and and, and these kind of things. And also physically, with the ears, I feel I have to prepare. I have to do some core exercises, these kind of things, maybe one or two yoga positions or, you know, actually get into shape because it's, right. it's of course, uh, you know. It's athletic. Yeah. If you're enjoying this conversation with Leif Uwe Onsnes, check out our episode with another giant of the classical world, pianist Long Long. We spoke before a live audience in New York City in 2019. One thing good about competition is that it kind of pushes you to play better than you normally does because you you try to uh, play without wrong notes. You try to be 100% concentrated on, on what you do. Uh, but also, in the same time, if you are too serious about competition, you lose your soul in a way that you are afraid to do something wrong. And as you know, in art, sometimes when you really do something unique, you are actually not really 
on the page. You are actually doing something, but that that is a really great moment. Hear the rest of my conversation with celebrated pianist Long Long at Here's the Thing.org. After the break, Leif Uva Ansnes shares what he believes all great pianists have in common. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
This is Leif Uwe Ansnes and the Mahler Chamber Orchestra performing Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 5 in E-flat major from The Beethoven Journey. Ansnes had the good fortune of being born into a musical family, which allowed him to begin charting his career path from an early age. My parents are teachers and music was the main subject, so I... I'm lucky because I'm from a really small community. I'm from an island in the western part of Norway, and I had absolutely no friends who, who did music and or played. But there was a piano in our home, and there came a few kids who wanted to have piano lessons from my parents. And, and I saw this, and I said, I also want to play. I'm very flush with admiration for the Norwegian people because of the work I've done with climate change. Uh-huh. And how uh, the the expenditure of m- hundreds of millions of Norwegian currency from their sovereign oil accounts to purchase land and to protect land in the rainforest in South America. Right. I mean, what the Norwegian government has done and what the Norwegian people are doing on behalf of climate change is really just amazing. Well, thank you. But I, I think we really have to. I mean, we are a very rich rich nation that, that became rich because of the oil and, and we, yes. we have to do something sensible with the money. But you say this is an island off the coast. Your yeah. parents were music teachers. And well, I mean, was there any pushing or there was no pushing? They just let you decide? It was my decision. I liked playing, but there's always, you know, there's a moment. And for me, it was probably when I was 12 years old when I, I thought it was much more interesting to do social things and football and I I played also in a, in a school band I played euphonium you know and I was in the choirs and it was a kind of diverse musical childhood and it's very lonely just to play the piano and I, I really had no friends doing the same thing so I, I guess there was some pushing involved you know for a few years there but on the other hand I, I knew inside that this was my language because I remember sitting down when I was about eight I remember a Christmas when I started having the joys of sight reading, you know, just simple pieces, Grieg, Chopin, and feeling these harmonies and, and actually exploring them for the first time myself. And I, I, I really felt that this is my first language. I was a very shy boy, but this I, here I could express myself. That's interesting. That's very well put, your first language. I believe that all the great pianists have something in common, as you said, this first language idea. What do you think you have in common with all the other great pianists? You all have the ability to do what? You have a peculiar nature that leads you to what? What do you all have that helped you become so great at what you do? I mean, I do remember quite early on that I had a feeling that people listened when I played, you know, and that was already <laughs> as a child or, 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 you know, early teenage years. And that was very inspiring. I, I thought, okay, I, I have a voice. I have something to say. And I felt that inside, like a burning desire to, to, to share this music with people. I played a lot for people when I, when I was young. My parents would take me around in local parties and things, and, and, and I would play for I would always love that. And I think that's really important, that you love sharing it. I mean, it's, you like it's, it. it's about sharing. Yeah. And we, we all have that in common. Otherwise, we just couldn't do it. And you see some people just having been pushed, and they uh, become adults, and they have no motivation uh, anymore because it has to be within you. You, you can become, you know, great at playing the piano. But if you don't have a feeling that you have that voice and you really, really want to share, there's no way you can, you can have this lifestyle. Now, when you're playing with the chamber orchestra, 
there's a relationship between them with you and them. You're the soloist. Mm -hmm. There's the ensemble, and there's the soloist. And mm -hmm. and I'm assuming that without apology, the task for everybody there is to support the soloist. The soloist is what's the the music itself is what's featured, but the performance of the soloist is ever so slightly more front and center than the than the work of the ensemble itself. Describe that, meaning, do these people naturally do what you need them to do? Do they just fall into place? Or do you need to kind of tell them what to do, what you need? Well, I, I'm working with them, and I, I have, you know, opinions and, and ideas about the music and what I want. But these are strong personalities, and, and they offer different things. And when we talk about Mozart's music, it's so much about dialogue. There's many, many places in these in these pieces where I am accompanying them. I actually think that Mozart's music is maybe the music which is most about human beings and society. Uh, I don't think it's much about nature, uh, like a lot of Scandinavian mm -hmm. Nordic music, for instance. But it's it's always about people. It's it's theater. It's it's opera and conversation, and that's so wonderful. When I play with them, I sit in the middle of the orchestra. We take the lid of the piano. So I'm sitting actually with the back to the audience, but I'm seeing the musicians. They are seeing me. We hear each other extremely well. And that intimate contact is is crucial to that kind of music making and, and to Mozart's world, I think. I mean, he wouldn't have had a conductor when he, when he was playing these things. You have performed in some pretty exotic locations on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> I'm Norwegian. I mean, that's, you know, you have... Yeah, you're Norwegian, so fjords, uh, I have to... Uh be injected into the process somewhere, uh, an oil rig off the coast. But beyond these more exotic locales that you've been performing in, are there cities that you love to return to? Are there places that when you get there, they, they feel like home more than others? Absolutely. Uh, but, but And that's the wonderful thing with touring. Uh, I remember actually my U.S. manager when I was 20, who I started working with, said, that, you know, the most important thing in this business is to build up a network of friends and and acquaintances and places and halls and, you know, that we have a feeling of home wherever you come, if it's Los Angeles or, or Tokyo or in Oslo. What I've been very careful at keeping at the same time is connection to home and being able to play in smaller halls in Norway once in a while. And I've also basically for the last 25 years been involved in festivals. I have at the moment a, a chamber music festival in, in Rosendal, which is a beautiful small village in, in western Norway by the fjords and, and, and mountains. And for, you know, a small week we do 12 concerts and I'm curating the program. I'm putting the people together and that's also another part of sharing and another part, you know, way of feeling connected to my home country and, and doing something more here than just jumping around playing different programs. So for me, it's been important to spend summers, especially in my part of the world, and to feel connected here. Now I also have a family, so there's a different connection, but, but it's... You have you know, three kids? I have three kids. And how old are they? They are 11, and we have twins who are eight. Any musical, any musical? Uh, well, we already have rumblings there. Already have a piano trio in the house, so there's there's <laughs> cello, violin, and piano. Uh, but we'll see how long that lasts. But uh, there's some fun, yeah. Yeah. When you come to the U.S., which I've always thought those people who love classical music in the U.S., there are a decent number of them, maybe not as many as I'd like. 
And that task that all the great ensembles have of cultivating the next generation of audience, you know, like the Philharmonic would do a lot of heavy ticketing and give a lot of mm. uh, free tickets to students to try to get them just to, you know, just to have that latent learning. You know, you're going to hear this piece. I talk about when I was a child and they had us do mandatory music classes and we had a guy who would come in and play. I mean, and he was, he was lovable and he was nuts, this guy. And we were in eighth grade in the middle of working class Long Island, and he was playing us Minotti operas on <laughs> vinyl. He was playing the medium and the telephone. And we'd all be sitting there going, what the hell is this guy? But I do believe, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in latent learning where you drop that seed on the ground. And not always, but for many people, it's going to bloom later, you know, down the road. Yeah. And so for me, when the uh, popular music ceased to have anything to say to me, when popular music remained even even more sophomoric in terms of I love you, why don't you love me? It was all like for kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, I turned on the radio in 1986. I turned on the radio and there came the final strains of uh, Schulte, the Chicago, the Mahler 9. And I never turned back. I, mean, I never turned back. And, yeah. and, and now I listen to minimal popular music. I mean, music that's contemporary popular music, none. I couldn't even tell you who these people are, which is also a sign of my age. But and do you give some credit to your old teacher for, you know, the, the Menotti? I do believe in respecting the ideas of people where that person took the time to tell me about that. Why did they want me to know that? Yeah. And in music, I feel like in classical music, there's people who they don't realize how much they love classical. Maybe not all of it. Maybe they don't need to be listening to Stravinsky. Maybe they like everything much more lush and kind of romantic. But yeah. there's classical music that that they want in their life, and they just don't know it yet. Yes, <laughs> they're about to find out. And that's you can come into your life later. You know. Yeah, and I think there, there's there's an age, you know, when when you are so open to these kind of things. I mean, my piano teacher I got when I was 14 was the first person. Uh, I knew he was a professional musician, and he gave me it was kind of nerdish, but he gave me some cassettes of Schoenberg piano music and and also some more standard Chopin and things. And and these are things that stay with me. I mean, I was so hungry for this stuff because nobody had, had given me introduction to these pieces and these pianists that he was, you know, Polini's recording of Schoenberg or whatever. But there is so little today in school, you know, about music. How do we how do we uh, how do we get out there? I mean I think we we mustn't be afraid to take kids to classical concerts also they of course they will be bored part of the time but something stays i think i mean i i loved it maybe i i was very unusual in this respect but i my parents took me to concerts piano recitals some orchestra concerts when i was 10 8 it, those experiences stay today i remember how it smelled in the concert hall you know how certain gestures of the pianist or the conductor or how it felt physical in the stomach, you know, how a chord in Shostakovich's symphony could make you feel totally ecstatic. Which, which symphony? In, in Shostakovich's fifth symphony. Shostakovich. Or, yeah. Right. Um, well, I think that people like you and Long Long and on and on and on with all these people that we've um, enjoyed, you have a, a gift from God. You know, you have a calling. I look at people like you and say, well, what choice did you have? You know what I mean? This is what you yes, were meant to do. of course. This is what you had to do. It's absolutely yeah. not a sacrifice because this is my life. It's not work. It's just, it's just who it. I am. I have, I mean, this is how I communicate with the world, basically. 
Maestro Leif Uva Ansas. If you're enjoying this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend and be sure to follow us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all four selections of the music from this episode and more in a curated Spotify playlist of my favorite pieces from Leif Uva Ansas. You'll find a link to the playlist in the show notes of this episode. When we return, Leif Uva Ansnes shares with us the composition that makes his heart race. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, guys. You know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. This is Leif Uwe Ansnes performing Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. I wanted to know his favorite places to play in the United States and what makes a great concert hall so unique. I mean, New York is such a 
musical home to me, and I've had many wonderful ex- experiences in the Lincoln Center, but not as not so much for the hall. But Carnegie certainly is absolutely a magical place to me, especially maybe for piano recital. I mean, which other hall can you? feel that you're filling it and and you can create the intimacy when it takes 2,800 people. I mean, that's really quite extraordinary. I think Severance Hall in Cleveland is wonderful. Symphony Hall in Boston, the new Disney Hall in in Los Angeles is is, Mm. is quite amazing. Someone said that hall in Miami is a good hall. And that's very nice. Really nice. Yeah. 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 No, there are many good halls. Now, in the United States, where we had... You know, for a while, for decades, we had a wonderful recordings and a kind of a battery between an ensemble and a maestro. So uh, lots of, uh, this is not just in the United States, but in North America. So Dutois with the uh, Montreal, Slatkin with the St. Louis, Zell with the Cleveland, Schulte with the Chicago, Bernstein in New York, and so forth. But Manfred Honig and the Pittsburgh, I mean, they really keep, he keeps putting out recordings. I mean, they keep recording music. And it's so beautiful. He's a very genuine, very genuine musician and so honest and, and really believes yeah. in what he's doing and really I I enjoyed, enjoyed a lot. I'm I'm going there actually in March playing with him, hopefully. You are, what are the, you gonna play? I'm playing the Benjamin Britten concerto, which is really fun. He Britain wrote it. Oh I'll find out, I'll come see you. I'll great, come. great. That would be heaven. Are you coming to New York anytime soon? Um, I'm with the Pittsburgh and Chicago Symphony in in the spring, and I was supposed to be with the New York Philharmonic this fall, and I couldn't get a visa, you know, because of this situation. Before November, it was very difficult to get a visa for the States, for Europeans, because there was such a backlog of of applications and and things. But we're working out some plans. I'm playing um, Recycling Carnegie next next season. So, One, One of the benefits, I think, for what you do, because I always say to people that in the movie business, the difficulty is, is that you don't really get to see the place that you're visiting that much because mm. the days are long. And if you have a decent role and you're shooting most days, you go to New Orleans or you go to a foreign city, you, anywhere you go in the world, and the days that you're free to be a tourist, they're few and far between. What are your favorite cities to come rolling into? What's a city that you just get excited to go to? What I love in this business, for instance, I was just in Brussels. And that's a place where I've played a lot. One of the places I've played most in, in, in Europe. And I love that you can have done a great concert in, in London two days earlier. And nobody in Brussels would care, right? I mean, you have to convince every every place you go that you have something to offer. I love the fact that you can maybe over time build an audience in different places. So when I played in Brussels the first time, I had 120 people coming to the concert and and now there might be 1,200 instead. And that's really, really heartwarming to feel that you have that loyalty from the audiences. But also if you don't deliver, of course they will not come back. Now when some of the people I've interviewed from your world have all in their own way, said the same thing, which is as difficult as the work can be. The other incredibly difficult thing for them is writing music. I mean, they said that's the hardest thing to do, is to write to write their own original music. So, Have you done a lot of writing? Over, we would describe your writing career over the last no, many years. No, I, I, I've never felt, I very rarely felt compelled to, to compose. I, as a teenager, I often sat down and improvising at the, at the keyboard and finding melodies or things reminded me of other other music but then i found how much joy there was in in discovering you know composers music and recreating them because i i think 
many people don't understand how much freedom we have as classical musicians. They think that we have a score in front of us and it says, okay, it's supposed to go fast and, and it starts soft and then gets a little louder and oh, it's all set. But of course not, because if it says allegro in the beginning, that means fast. You know, what is fast? Uh, that's just one of the parameters. I mean, you talked about tempo earlier, how much it can vary in a piece like Claire de Lune or in, 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 in a mother symphony. But also if, if I see piano, which means soft in the beginning, what is soft? If I play in my living room, I can be very silent and it might still sound rather loud. If I play in Carnegie Hall and I play the same dynamic, nobody can hear me. I have to pronounce it in a very different way, even when it says piano in the score. And what kind of piano are we... Are we does the music mean here? Is, is it full of tension or is, should it be very secretive? Should it be very confessional? Uh, you know, all these kind of things. So I'm, uh, you know, more and more discovering how much freedom there is inside these scores. They're, they're just dots on a piece of paper. I mean, we, <clears throat> we have to bring them um, to life. And I've, in my life, been much more attracted to that than, than trying to write some bad music. <laughs> well, I was. I said to Bronfman one time. We went to dinner with him, and I said to him, "Is there a piece, or are there are there pieces for you, which are just more uh, uh, like the equivalent of like a double black diamond ski run for you? Is there a piece you sit down and you've mastered this piece, you've played it many many times, and you and you know what you're doing, but you nonetheless have a pause before you." put your fingers on those keys and say, this is a tough one. This is one that demands more of me than any other piece. Are there pieces like that for you? Oh, yeah. And in different ways, you know, also for the memory sometimes. You know, in of course, if I play Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto, it's, it's a huge piece. But I play that since I was 22. And it's very demanding physically. But it's also very comfortable to play somehow because it's so fantastically written for the instrument. The Fourth Concerto, which is much less known, is extremely hard for the memory. So I would, my, my pulse would always go up before playing that piece. I would always, the rock one and a fourth. Yeah, and I play that a lot as well. That's always with some tension because it's much more asymmetrical and weird and sometimes like jazz improvisation. And to, to memorize the whole thing is, is really, really you know, it's tough together with the orchestra. Is there a decent stock of piano concertos from Rachmaninoff? Well, you've done them already. I've, I've them done them. Already. There are the four piano concertos and the, the, right. the Paganini Rhapsody. Um, and that's wonderful stuff, of course. Ravel? Ravel, you know, I've, I have some really favorite composers that I've hardly played a note of. And, and Ravel is one of them. I've never played his piano concertos. I have very little of the solo repertoire, but I absolutely love listening to it. I, I don't know I what it is. Ravel. I would, as a pianist, I think I find more freedom and creativity in playing Debussy, you know, the other French, great French composer. But I, I adore Ravel and I absolutely, I mean, that's the, the luxury you have when you're a pianist. You don't need to play everything because there's so much. Right. Well, listen, thank you. I'm very grateful to you. Great pleasure. And best of luck with the finishing your project, okay? Thanks a lot. My thanks to Leif Uwe Ansnes. We leave you with Ansnes performing composer Leos Janacek's piece, Our Evenings, from the piano series entitled On an Overgrown Path. The musical selections in today's episode are presented with the kind permission of Warner Classics and Sony Classical. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart. 
Radio. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Hey, guys. You know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.